Welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which is predicted to reach epidemic levels in our lifetime. We will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to increase our understanding of how superbugs are impacting our healthcare systems globally. They will also highlight actions that we can take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections. This series is co-created by the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Marnie Peterson. Welcome back, everyone, to the third episode of Superbugs and You. In this episode, we'll turn our focus to the global issue of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, or TB. In 2018, an estimated 10 million people fell ill with tuberculosis worldwide. Many of those infections were resistant to multiple antibiotics, many of them being first-line agents. In this episode, we will interview a patient, a young woman, and she talks about the stigma of TB and how she dealt with that through her art. Secondly, a clinician from South Africa, she is working tirelessly to reduce the spread of multidrug resistant tuberculosis. Finally, a researcher focusing on the diagnosis of tuberculosis in children. Our next guest is Paulina. Hello, my name is Paulina Sinyatkina. I am an artist and I come from Russia and I'm a TB survivor. Paulina, can you take us back to that day when you first heard that you were diagnosed with tuberculosis? Uh, yes, it was in 2015. Um, I was 25 years old. Uh, and I remember it was uh, spring and I had a really kind of bad condition. Uh, and uh, I was visiting different doctors and uh, no one could uh, tell me what's wrong with me. Um, they were giving me different diagnoses, uh, different pills, different antibiotics uh, against uh, different diseases. But um, no one could tell me what is actually going on until um, my uh, temperature body temperature raised up to 40 and I fainted and then there was ambulance and ambulance rushed me to the hospital and as this was um, a simple hospital not uh, specializing on TB um, they still couldn't really uh, give me the right diagnosis they they diagnosed me with pneumonia and uh, for two weeks they were treated me with Again, different antibiotics, and I was really nearly dying already because the treatment was not right. But at, at some point, they decided to do the computer tomography, and uh, of course, they saw the actual picture, and they departed me to the specialized hospital, <laughs> to a TB hospital. That's where I spent uh, almost seven months. So that's... At that point, you received the diagnosis, and then you were transferred to a specific TB hospital. After first, they were first thinking you had some sort of pneumonia, bacterial, other bacterial pneumonia. So, at that time, did you understand what tuberculosis was? What What were the clinicians telling you? I had no idea what tuberculosis is. Uh, I was I was scared. Um, because uh, I saw the eyes of uh, my parents. I, uh, I saw that doctors are also shocked. And basically, I was afraid just because I saw their faces. <laughs> and, um, but as for me, I, I, I heard about this disease, but I never knew anything specific. So I didn't know what to expect. Of course, uh, but uh, because the treatment was not right for a very long time, uh, my condition went really bad, and I was really nearly dying. And my uh, they brought me again with an ambulance to this uh, 
TB hospital and the first three months I could not walk. It was a really very uh, scary experience in the beginning. You mentioned earlier that it was seven months that you spent at this hospital, this TB hospital that you were transferred to. Can you describe a little bit about the course of treatment, what that was like, those seven months? Well, it was uh, also a very difficult story because uh, mm, my treatment was changing every time. Uh, First, of course, uh, doctors gave me the first-line drugs uh, for to treat tuberculosis, which was the right thing to do. Uh, then they were giving all the tests, and I, I had to pass through the tests of um, uh, if my bacteria is resistant or not. And uh, this test I was expecting for three months. But as my condition was bad, I had all kind of side effects that you could ever imagine. Uh, so they were changing the the antibiotics. They were changing the scheme every time. And at some point, they were giving me the antibiotics for resistant tuberculosis. But my test was, was showing that my bacteria was sensitive. But back then, I didn't understand anything about tuberculosis. So I didn't know um, if this was right or bad. Uh, I was just uh, eating the pills that I was given. But my doctors started to change the pills very quickly. They were giving me canamycin for four months. And as I know, this drug is for uh, resistant tuberculosis. Levofloxacin, also for resistant tuberculosis. They were giving me protianamide. I, I was not supposed to take these pills, but they were still changing the, the chemotherapy for me. I don't know. Sometimes there were just no drugs in the hospital and um, they were, uh, you know, mixing new uh, schemes. But uh, I think it's one of the problems uh, in, like, the biggest problems in Russia, like, uh, well, to the time when I was treated in 2015, uh, in my hospital, it was uh, happening to almost every patient. So the access, having access to the appropriate medications? Yeah, it is a big, big uh, problem. And as I was getting the uh, antibiotics for resistant tuberculosis, such as canamycin, uh, I I, uh, lost a bit of my hearing and uh, still, uh, still I have troubles with hearing. Antibiotics are so important to obviously or everything to the treatment and cure of the disease just what are your what are some of your thoughts on this as far as having access to the antimicrobials that are necessary but also preventing the spread of resistant strains Uh, this is my favorite subject as you know russia is on the uh, top is a one of the top three countries of uh, multidrug resistant tuberculosis together with India and China. And um, I think uh, there are a few mistakes in our history which we made uh, to achieve this uh, terrible thing. Um, first, I think one of the most important thing I, I have to say this in the beginning, um, all the doctors, all the clinicians have to follow the WHO guidelines. This is the most important thing to do to prevent um, anything from failure. But for instance, in case with Russia, uh, guidelines are not followed in many cases. I was just really lucky to uh, get uh, cured because during my treatment and when I already started to realize that I am treated not in a correct way, I started to fight for the first-line drugs. I was saying, I have a sensitive tuberculosis, give me the first-line drugs. Um, 
this is super important to prevent uh, my bacteria from getting resistant because it was treated with uh, medicine which was already for drug-resistant tuberculosis. And I was not the only one who was treated um, not in a correct way. So your doctor, I don't know which doctor this was, but one of your physicians you described uh, advised you, and maybe this is when you're leaving the hospital perhaps, about how you could discuss the fact that you had TB, discuss with you about whether you should share this diagnosis with others or not, or be cautious. Were, were you? Where did that leave you? Were you afraid to, to talk to others about it? after you were able to leave the hospital? Mm, this happened uh, in the beginning of my treatment. Uh, when uh, I was just in the beginning of my path of fighting tuberculosis, I remember that I came to my first doctor and I decided that I, 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 think, I, have to <clears throat> I think I have to ask all the questions about tuberculosis because I didn't know anything about it. So... I was wondering how contagious I was, uh, how many people I could infect, how um, mm, how many months I was ill already before I was uh, in the hospital. I think this was very important for me. I, I really wanted to know all these things. And the first thing he said is that uh, don't tell anybody you have tuberculosis, otherwise you will be branded for life. And you are a young girl, you don't need this uh, shame. That's how I learned that uh, tuberculosis is apparently something shameful. And uh, since uh, I didn't know anything about it, this was like the first information I knew. And that's how I uh, myself became stigmatized also. <clears throat> and then I saw also all the other patients uh, which which were together with me in this hospital, they were hiding their disease. Uh, they were uh, lying to their relatives even. Their re relatives uh, were thinking that they have pneumonia or even cancer, but not tuberculosis. So gradually I was uh, really thinking that, oh, okay, I, I should keep silence too. Right when my bacteria became... Um, not contagious anymore when the test showed that uh, I am not contagious. They allowed me to leave hospital for a weekend with my parents. Um, and this was the first time I was out of the hospital just for a short time. But I immediately realized everything. Just when you make one step of the hospital, of the, the isolation breaks, and you realize that wait a minute, I am not guilty for my disease. Why should I hide it? Maybe I, you know, I, I'm not guilty for it and neither my friends, uh, neither anybody. And if I got it, it means anybody can get it. And that's how gradually I started to think about it and realizing that um, I should do something about it. I wanted to do something. That's how I started to paint inside the hospital and I made the art studio from my chamber where I was treated the rest of the month I had to spend there. Let's talk about that, Paulina. So you were an artist before you were diagnosed with tuberculosis? Yes, this is my profession. I'm a professional artist since I'm six years old. <laughs> That's amazing. And you're a painter. <clears throat> Yeah, my main media is painting. And so you made that decision, I, and the way you've described it is to, to fight TB through your art. This was, this was your media. Mm, not TB, stigma. The stigma. With the back of my mind, I was realizing, okay, I heard that TB is curable, that in the end I will get cured. But stigma is not going to get cured just if we are not going to do anything about it. And uh, that's how I started to realize also that stigma is actually uh, the thing that is the, like the biggest obstacle we have to fight to be worldwide. 
and uh, then um, I was asking my friends to pose for the paintings. Uh, it was important for me in the hospital to make portraits of my friends, and uh, because I wanted to show that these are young, beautiful people, and uh, they can also get to be. And I also wanted to share the stories of these people. So through these paintings, the, through these portraits that I made, I wanted to share their story with uh, the viewers, future viewers. Of course, there were some people who didn't want to pose for my paintings because they were af afraid that somebody would recognize them. Um, but uh, at this time, this all became for me just uh, really a big fun thing. It was like our main, our uh, joint project. And when I opened the exhibition uh, in Moscow at the first time, I, I said that this is not just my project it is we made it together in the hospital that's how I started to paint about tuberculosis and stigma talk about the exhibition when you first um, had the paintings viewed so in 2016 I opened uh, my exhibition with the name of hold your breath um, in Moscow um, and that's how uh, many media uh, published my interviews. And that's how uh, fonts, many fonts, many organizations which work uh, with TB started to notice me. And they started to tell me that I'm an activist. But I was like, no, wait, I'm an artist. I'm not an activist. I, I got to know a few activists already back then in Russia. And uh, I was pushing them. I was saying, these are activists, <laughs> take them. <laughs> um, but uh, this world, this activism world sucked me in. And um, after a few, few months, I already had projects uh, with a few organizations. Um, and and my, then the role of activist. Yeah, my my second big project. You weren't necessarily seeking, and and now here you are in this role. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, my my second big activistic project was the brochure. Uh, I I wanted to, um, I wanted to speak with patients already, right? You know, with with patients about the disease because I know all my problems that I faced in the hospital. I, I remember that I had no information. Doctors don't talk to you. Uh, patients don't talk to you. Uh, it is like a world of, uh, of unknown. And uh, yeah, it, was, it is a very important project for me. And right now it is translated in uh, 13 languages. How is your health now, Paulina? So it's five years. It's been five years since your diagnosis. I'm pretty good. I think listeners should understand that the most important thing about TB is that it is a curable disease. And since you were cured, you can forget about it. Really. Thank you, Paulina, for sharing your story. And in sharing that story with us, helping to reduce the stigma surrounding tuberculosis. Next guest is Dr. Natalie Shellac. I'm Natalie Shellac, and thank you for having me today. I'm currently a professor um, at Sefaku Makhato Health Sciences University in South Africa. It's mainly a medical university, and I'm currently the acting head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacy. And yes, my primary research area is infectious diseases. Natalie, can you, to begin the conversation, can you describe what are some of the key issues that you're dealing with in preventing and managing drug-resistant TB in South Africa? Yes, thank you. So I think TB continues to be a disease of major importance in South Africa. 
And currently an estimated 301,000 South Africans become ill with TB and an estimated 63,000 people die from TB. But more or less 600 people become diagnosed with TB daily. The very high number of people in HIV in South Africa is increasing the number of people with active TB disease. And of the 63,000 people that I've mentioned earlier, estimated to have died, an estimated 42,000 were HIV positive. So we also have that double comorbid condition. And TB continues to be one of the single largest contributors to death in South Africa. As well as driven by HIV, the TB burden is also driven by poor living conditions and late presentations to healthcare facilities. Can you speak a little bit more about the overall burden of disease in South Africa and the challenges in treating children and teens? So I think when we look at TB, we have different conditions. We've got multidrug resistant TB. We've got XTR-TB. So when we look at TB in itself, TB as the primary condition um, is almost becoming less than what we are seeing in multiple drug-resistant TB. So when we talk about multiple drug-resistant TB, we talk about in vitro, in other words, in the person's resistance to both two of the most or the, the drugs that we use in the most of the time, which is isoniazide and rivampicin. So those are the two drugs that we use in treating, but also in preventing TB. So we are seeing more and more patients that are becoming resistant to the drugs that we use to treat and to prevent TB. And then we also have XDR-TB. So XDR-TB is when a patient is resistant to first-line TB and isoniazide and trifampicin plus a quinolone TB. And unfortunately, we are seeing more and more patients that present for the first time with multiple drug and XTR-TB presenting at healthcare facilities. So as I've mentioned earlier, with the high rates of drug-resistant TB in South Africa, we also have patients that present with latent TB or or is diagnosed with latent TB. So latent TB is where a patient in South Africa has got the mycobacterium, but the inoculum, in other words, the bacterium, the mycobacterium um, that they have is not enough yet to present with um, TB itself. So latent TB, that's something that we really struggle with in South Africa at the moment, is that a lot of South Africans actually have latent TB. It's estimated that around about 80% of the population of South Africa, 80% of the population of South Africa is infected with TB bacteria, and the vast majority of whom have got latent TB rather than active TB disease. Why do you feel that the burden of disease is so high, and is it increasing or decreasing? From 2012 to 2016, it's almost as if we've turned a corner in terms of managing TB because the government has put such a, a large effort into, into managing TB. However, because of poor nutrition and also poor living conditions, it seems as though we're not quite getting there yet. And childhood TB, as you've mentioned a little bit earlier, has increasingly been recognized as contributing to the portion of, of active TB. So I think One of the biggest reasons is also if you look at the time that you need. So six to eight months before you, where you have to take maybe four or five tablets a day, you have to go and stand in long queues. Our um, economical conditions where patients have to give up a whole day just to go and get their treatment also plays a really high um, role in patients going back. Um, And and I just want to give you some figures in terms of the, the childhood prevalence. Um, in, in South Africa, the childhood TB is around about 20% of all of the cases that we see. 20%, that's one in five of all of your patients. I think what's unique to South Africa is because we've got HIV can drive TB and really make it worse with all of these other poor nutrition, not a lot of money every day. When a, when a child becomes a teenager and they have to take all of these tablets, it makes it really difficult to manage TB. And if and I think maybe if it was a tablet that you could just take once, but now you have to take that child or that adult 
and have them take all of these tablets for six to eight months, it makes it difficult to manage. You mentioned previously that the antibiotics that children are prescribed can have detrimental side effects and that these side effects can affect their willingness to take their medications. Can you expand a little bit on how this complicates therapy? Yes. Okay, so um, in the past, maybe before 2018, um, around about in 2018, we started with pedaquiline um, as part of some of our drug-resistant TB regimens. But before that, we had to give some of these teenagers canamycin, which is an injectable. And even for just a primary non-drug-resistant TB regimen, in, in any patient, we started with rifampicin and isoniazide. Um, as part of their primary treatment. And these drugs have got effects on the hepatic system. And some of these drugs can also cause coloring of your, you know, your secretions, your sweat and your eye drops. So it makes it red. So when they, you know, either go to the bathroom or if they're crying, it becomes red. So that already makes them stand out in teenagers and adolescents. But canamycin, which was an injectable that we used uh, regularly prior to the introduction of some of the newer agents, for example, bedaquiline in 2018, you know, that caused autotoxicity. And then some of these adolescents, when they had to come, they would start losing um, their hearing. What is the South African go- government's approach to managing the treatment of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis? So, so the government has got a, a plan Um, the national strategic plan that they are hoping to completely eradicate TB. Um, And they've been really vocal about it. It's a beautiful strategy, but it's super expensive. So I'm not sure. The most important strategy that we have is trying to prevent a patient from becoming multidrug resistant or XDR resistant. And remember, if I'm if I'm MDR or XDR resistant and I confer my resistance to my child, they don't, they don't have late, they don't have um, just normal TB. I won't confer non-drug resistant TB to my child. I'll transfer MDR or XDR TB to my child. That's the TB, the mycobacter. I'll already give them drug resistant TB. So I think one of the the most important prevention strategies that we can do is trying to prevent MDR and XDR TB purely because of the cost involved, the drug availability. Currently, we have stockouts in South Africa. One in five. Every time that a patient goes to South Africa, any of these government facilities or one in five of the medicines won't necessarily be there. And if you have waited a whole day and you've given up a whole day of work and you get to a clinic or a healthcare facility and you'll only receive four of the five medicines, even though we've got combined tablets, but any one of your tablets won't necessarily be there. We are also driving resistance towards some of the TB medicines that we have. Why are these antibiotics not readily available? It could be because of national stockouts. It may be because of funding, supplier availability. It may be because TB is not a, it's not necessarily a global problem. It's a problem for some of the countries that we are seeing. It might be a problem in some of the developing countries. So some of the pharma companies, the pharmaceutical countries, because the economic viabilities for these companies the, the probability for them to have funding or make money is not necessarily the priority. So we, every year, the South African government do call for um, tenders. Then we have companies that, that say they would be able to supply these medicines, but when we really need these medicines, we, we won't necessarily have them. So the follow-through is and the commitment isn't always there. But But in South Africa... We have the expertise. We've got the clinicians because it's a, it's a condition that we deal with regularly. We've got healthcare workers. We've got programs, uh, the DOT program, where where we've trained 
We've trained community workers to go and make sure that patients are really adhering to their to their medicine. So we've got the commitment. We've got the research expertise. I mean, some of the trials that are running for vaccines is done at the University of Cape Town. And and we have we have all of the expertise, but if we don't have funding and we don't necessarily have the follow-through in, in terms of medicine availability, and if we've got massive resistance, then I'm not completely sure if we are ever going to make big waves in terms of really reducing the number of, of patients um, living with, with TB and HIV. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the ability to trace and treat tuberculosis? Because COVID is, is so new, actually, um, we haven't really got a lot of research pertaining to how you know it, it affects TB traceability. But what it does make dif- difficult, and that's what you've just mentioned, is the availability of, of all of the other medicines that we do need and the attention, the, the attention of healthcare workers, because there has been a lot of attention on HIV and TB in South Africa, especially in some of the provinces that are really hard hit by, by these two conditions. So we don't have exact stats, but we have a concept that we call emergency pharmaceutical care. And if you look at the Ebola pandemic that struck West Africa, a lot of the patients didn't necessarily die of Ebola. They died because the comorbid conditions were neglected. So we wanted to make sure that we don't necessarily, you know, neglect the comorbid conditions. So we haven't, we don't really have hard statistics around that. Thank you, Natalie, for sharing the overall impact of tuberculosis on your country and all the efforts that you're taking to eradicate this disease. Our next guest is researcher Dr. Mark Nickel. Hello, my name is Mark Nickel. I'm a a clinical microbiologist, and um, for many years I've worked in tuberculosis research, mainly in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, And the focus of my research has been around developing and evaluating new diagnostics for TB and drug resistance in TB. Um, And also more recently, looking at some of the health systems issues around delivering care for patients with drug-resistant TB. Uh, I I still work in Cape Town, although I I now have an appointment in Australia at the University of Western Australia. In 2018, 1.1 million children fell ill with TB globally, and there were 205,000 child deaths due to TB, including among children with HIV. Child and adolescent TB is often overlooked by health providers and can be difficult to treat and diagnose. Dr. Nickel, your research focuses on the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric TB. Why is pediatric TB so difficult to diagnose? So so I guess there there are many answers to that question. The the first part is uh, that young children who present with TB really have often very nonspecific clinical features. So they'll present with weight loss sometimes a bit of a cough, which may be short, short in duration or, or, or longer in duration, um, and, and fever. And, and obviously those clinical features can overlap with many other conditions in childhood. Uh, you know, so many children who present with TB also have malnutrition, for example. Um, and so from a clinical perspective, it's difficult to diagnose. Um, the second problem is that the radiological features are, are also very nonspecific. So when we look at a chest X-ray of a child with TB, the features are often subtle. Um, there's often disagreement between people in, in how to interpret the, the, the chest X-ray and, in fact, whether the child is likely to have TB based on the radiological findings. Um, and, and again, the, 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 the picture on the chest X-ray may overlap with, with many other conditions in childhood. Um, and, then, and then from the microbiological perspective, there are also a number of challenges. Uh, so first of all, it's, it's difficult to get respiratory specimens from children with TB. Most kids with TB are under the age of five. Um, 
and and many of them are under, under the age of two, and it's really hard to get a young child to produce a good sputum specimen. So many kids will swallow their sputum or not expectorate. Um, and so simply the, the mechanics of collecting a, a respiratory sample are very difficult. Um, and then if one is able to obtain a sample, um, the pathological features of childhood TB are such that they, they typically don't, certainly young kids tend not to have cavities in their lungs. And so as a result, there are very few TB bacilli which are produced in the sputum. So it's what we call porcibacillary disease. There's, there's, there are only a, a, a few number of TB bacilli which are actually present in the sputum. And so we need tests with high sensitivity to be able to pick up uh, those small numbers of, 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 of organisms. Um, and so this is a problem for pediatric TB in general. It's particularly, of course, a problem for drug-resistant TB where we, we really need to be able to culture or identify the organism in order to do drug susceptibility testing to identify the extent of drug resistance. And I mentioned that your research is focused on this. Uh, how are you trying to solve some of these challenges so we've we've really been trying to tackle this problem for a long time now, and um, I think we have made some progress. Um, um, so, so part of the problem has just been that there have been actually very few groups working on pediatric TB diagnostics, you know, just un until recently, really just a handful. Um, but there have been some important advances in, in the last decade and in the last five years, I guess, in particular. Um, the first is around... Um, collecting alternative specimen types and looking at which alternative specimen types may be suitable to diagnose TB in children. So, for example, there's a lot of what we've done some work and there's a lot of work now happening in the field of stool, um, which sounds a bit peculiar, but if you think about it, if young children don't expectorate their sputum, they swallow it, then um, uh, in theory, one should be able to find TB bacilli in, in stool from children with TB. So, so we've done some work in this area, and there are a number of large multi-center studies looking at stool for diagnosing pediatric TB. Um, similarly, urine. Um, whilst we can't detect uh, the, the, the whole TB bacillus in urine, we can look for, for components of the bacillus, so either a DNA for TB or, more promisingly, um, uh, different antigens, so LAM, which is this lipoarabomannan antigen from TB, uh, which is found in the uh, in, in the urine, certainly of adults, HIV-infected adults with TB. We we are also able to detect in in a proportion of children with pediatric TB, and of course, urine is easy to get from a kid, um, so that's a very promising. Um, uh, avenue of investigation, um, and, and in fact, I think is likely to move into clinical practice very soon. Um, and then um, we've worked with colleagues at the University of Washington, Jerry Cangelosi, on uh, looking at oral swabs, which again sounds very peculiar, um, but actually um, the, the theory there is that um, as, as children or adults expectorate or, or cough up sputum, um, TB bacilli may adhere to the mucous membranes of the mouth and tongue, and if you scrape those off, in fact, you can detect uh, TB in a, in a proportion of, of, of children with tuberculosis simply by doing an oral swab. Moving also to the issue of multidrug-resistant TB, which remains a public health crisis, and the, the World Health Organization estimates there are 484,000 new cases with resistance to rifampicin which is one of the most uh, effective first-line drugs. So as the multidrug-resistant TB has become more common in cases of TB, how has diagnostic testing evolved to try and detect these multidrug-resistant organisms? So, so fortunately, this is an area where there's been a lot of significant progress in the, in the past 10 years. Um, so so a, a, a decade ago, to to identify drug resistance, you had to get a sputum sample from a patient, you had to culture it for mycobacterium tuberculosis, and of course TB grows very slowly, so that could take you know, anything from two to six weeks. Um, and you then had to grow the bug in the presence or absence of the particular drug that you were testing, and that would take another two or three weeks. Um, and so the, the, the diagnostic process was very long and the delay to, in fact, even identifying drug resistance was, was extremely long. And, and of course that's compounded by the fact that Culturing TB in a lab is a dangerous thing to do, particularly drug-resistant TB. Um, and many of the places in the world where um, TB, the burden of TB is highest, these labs simply don't exist or, or are very few and far between. 
Um, however, um, with the advent of molecular detection of drug resistance, that's really changed quite dramatically. The, the, the first step was the use of what we call line probe assays, where you still had to culture the organism, um, but you were then able to do a molecular test to detect resistance directly. So this, that sort of second part of the drug susceptibility testing was shortened. And then with the advent of, 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 of the rapid molecular diagnostics like EXPERT or EXPERT Ultra, um, uh, we're able to now test sputum directly from patients and identify resistance to the first-line TB drugs. Um, and that's really, I think, been a game changer. It means that um, we can identify resistance at the point where the patient first presents for care. They don't get put on suboptimal therapy. We can treat them uh, appropriately from the beginning, reduce their duration of their infectiousness, um, and reduce their morbidity. Um, and, and then, and then I, I think the next phase of, of, of this is really going to move towards using, essentially replacing the old phenotypic drug susceptibility testing with genotypic methods, particularly whole genome sequencing and, and sequencing the whole TB bacillus, which in theory should give us complete information about drug resistance in, in, in that particular patient. Um, we, we can certainly do this at the moment using cultured isolates, but we're not yet at the point where we can do this, this kind of whole genome sequencing directly from a patient specimen. And with the whole genomic sequencing for our listeners, what, as you move towards that, what, what does that, how does that enhance things for the management or the diagnosis of the disease? Right. So, so in the, TB is actually quite a simple organism. It's, it's, it's not as complicated as, as some of the gram negatives, for example, where, where there's a lot of genetic exchange between bacteria. TB things are much simpler. TB has a stable genome. It doesn't exchange genetic information. And, and when it develops drug resistance, it does this just usually by, 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 by small mutations in the DNA sequence. And so if we are able to detect those mutations in the DNA sequence, we can then say with a high degree of precision exactly what drugs the patient, the, this, this particular isolate is resistance to, and we can tailor treatment accordingly for that patient. And I think as we move towards sort of the era of precision medicine, this is going to become an incredibly valuable tool. We'll be able to tailor treatment precisely to the particular bug which is infecting the patient and the, and the particular drug resistance profile which that bug has. So Mark, I want to uh, switch to how in the era of the COVID pandemic now, um, how this has affected your research in the area of TB? So, so, so Moni, I mean, it, it's had a very substantial effect. So, so both in my own research projects and then I, I, I sit on the advisory board for a couple of other TB projects and really almost across the board, um, field research has, has stopped over this period, and, and in many cases now it's, you know, it's been stopped for six six months um, or, or more, um, and 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 you know this is obviously problematic because the research is delayed. It's problematic because researchers are continuing to have to pay their staff salaries while while no research is happening, and so whether in fact some of these research projects will be able to be completed or completed. You know, as as optimally as they would otherwise, I think is a big question. Uh, so, so your research funders are being are being um, generally quite kind about this and, and acknowledging these problems. Um, but the, the fact remains is that I think um, research is going to be delayed, and and in some cases, we won't be able to do the research as thoroughly um, and with as many patients as we would have liked. Um, you know, if, if this hadn't happened. Um, and, and then I, I guess the second point is also just there's been a massive diversion of research funding, uh, you know, from the big research funders in general away from other illnesses and towards COVID. What's happening with diagnostic testing and the manufacturing of these tests for tuberculosis as a result of COVID? So, so, so I think it has impacted on the diagnostic services, but, but, but I think probably actually the, the, the more important impact on diagnostics is actually been the decline in testing requests. So, for example, in South Africa, um, some of the labs are reporting receiving less than 50% as many tests for TB diagnos diagnosis that they would normally receive. And, and, and I think that reflects 
probably a reluctance of patients who, who are sick and need diagnosis to to attend healthcare facilities for the diagnosis and and perhaps also just you know primary healthcare being swamped and and clinicians not being able to to to, to focus on 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 TB uh, because of the demand on COVID. So so this, there's really been a dramatic decline in TB testing and. And you know certainly the, the number of cases hasn't declined, so that that reflects people out in the community not being diagnosed, which is a, which is a real worry. That's a real worry because there could be all of this collateral um, d- collateral damage, if you will, from COVID, as far as these other diseases that there has been quite a bit of global health initiatives around trying to to significantly reduce or end some of the epidemics with TB or HIV or malaria, some of these things, could, some of these infections could then significantly re-increase in their prevalence. Yeah, I, I think that's that's almost an inevitable consequence, unfortunately. You know, so there's, there's been one modeling study which suggested uh, an additional 6 million cases of TB and 1.4 million deaths between 2020 and 2025 as a result of the, the COVID nineteen epidemic, um, and and then of course the you know the the, the economic effects and and the associated um, reduction in uh, food security, increased poverty, and 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 reduced funding for the health systems, is 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 all of those are, are going to impact on these diseases of poverty. So really very very worrying. I think one thing that COVID has done, which is positive is it's uh, alerted us to the possibilities around telemedicine, around community treatment, um, around you know, delivering drugs to patients' homes. And, and, and I think those kind of lessons, if we can learn them, um, may, may well help us deliver more you know, family-centered and person-centered care for drug-resistant TB. Yeah, it takes us right into a discussion around the future. Where do you think the support for TB research should should be focused going forward? So, so, so I think in, in many ways, we're in a, a much better space than we were several years ago. Um, this is COVID notwithstanding. Um, you know, we, we have much better diagnostic tools. We have, certainly for drug-resistant TB, we have much more effective, less toxic treatment regimens. Um, of course, we're always going to be playing a catch-up game, and as soon as we get a new drug, resistance will develop. And so, you know, we 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 can't rest on our laurels and 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 not continue the drive towards development, uh, you know, research into development and testing of, of better drugs for for TB and drug-resistant TB, particularly ones that allow us to shorten treatment duration. Um, but I think we also need to recognise that simply having the drugs and the diagnostic tools is not enough. And this is really something we've learned from our diagnostic work is unless the diagnostic tools are implemented in an effective and rational way and unless patients are able to access those diagnostics, then really one doesn't realize the gains from these new technologies. And so I, 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 I personally believe that you know we need, we need more research around health systems interventions to deliver more effective care, more person-centered care um, for patients with TB and drug-resistant TB. Thank you, Dr. Nickel, for sharing your research with us and your concepts for moving forward to reduce the burden of tuberculosis. At the end of our interview, I ask each of our guests the following question. What actions can we all take to decrease the stigma of TB and the risk of drug-resistant infections? I, I guess the first point is just is, is, is that we, we all need to just recognize and remember that TB remains a, a major killer in the world. And it's, you know, it's an entirely preventable disease. Um, and yet, you know, it will it will kill many more people than COVID, you know, over over you know the, the next three, four, five years. Um, and and then to advocate wherever one can for continued investment in 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 both both in research around tuberculosis, but also around delivery of services for for TB. Um, 
And 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 then linked to that, I guess, is is also I think we need to really strongly advocate for the rights of patients to care, which you know respects their needs, but also their dignity and the needs of their families. Um, and we need to educate ourselves and others to reduce stigma around TB and, and drug-resistant TB. I think, first of all, what, what you guys are doing and within your organization is awareness. So, first of all, create knowledge and awareness of how TB is being spread and, and the mode of transmission so that's the first action and, and being aware of how the condition spreads, that it's an airborne condition and, um, you know, how it actually enters uh, your body and how it can cause disease. That's the, first, that's the first and most important tool that we have in, in preventing the transmission of, of tuberculosis. Second is, is taking away shame and blame shifting in patients that are already positive. I wish to live in a world free of stigma and I, I wish that everybody wouldn't be afraid to speak up. I think this is the most important thing I can say. Uh, it's important that people are not afraid to speak up about, uh, at the first sight, difficult subjects, but actually they are not so difficult. It is just life. It is uh, what we are. And uh, when humanity exists, we will have diseases, different, different diseases. And, um, but it is in our hands to, to change it and prevent it from happening and maybe even beat it completely. But we can do it only if we are not afraid to speak up. You've been listening to Superbugs and You a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the impact of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. The podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information, on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, sidrap.umn.edu ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at sidrap underscore ASP and at AM Resistance.